Welcome to the Blockchain Practitioners Podcast, where we talk to leaders, professors, and experts in the blockchain space about an industry which in a few years will affect the lives of us all. My name is Alexandros, and in this episode, I'm talking to Morgan Dean. Morgan is the CEO of Swiss-based investment bank Bader Helvea. Originally an international lawyer, he has worked with some of the world's most prominent financial institutions throughout his career. He's an advisor, mentor, and angel investor in early-stage companies focusing on blockchain and cryptocurrency-related ventures in his private capacity. He also provides strategic advice to brands seeking to enter the metaverse and advises governments and international organizations on blockchain-related projects. He's a member of the Forbes Finance Council, a regular speaker and author, and a thought leader in disruptive technologies and innovation. Please keep in mind that the contents of the podcast are personal opinions of the individual and have nothing to do with the companies and organizations he is and will be associated with. I hope you enjoy the podcast episode. Morgan, thank you very much for coming to the Blockchain Practitioners Podcast. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. Uh, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, I'm originally an international lawyer. I've worked my career in investment banking. I've worked across Europe and the US with some of the major Wall Street banks. And uh, I moved to Switzerland in 2010. I moved originally as legal counsel to the firm I'm with, but I moved into sort of executive management throughout the following years. And I became CEO in 2015. So the firm I work with is very focused on traditional institutional equities. Um, There is some exploration going on, on on tokenization and cryptocurrency. But for me, most of my deep diving into blockchain and crypto was done privately. I mean, for the last six years, I've been quite deep in blockchain, uh, in crypto, both on understanding it, investing in it, also into DeFi, learning how to use it, working with protocols and into NFTs. And what has kind of happened over the years is that people have started to reach out to me, combining my, my legal, my regulatory, my financial knowledge together with my understanding of blockchain and crypto. And it has led me now to being uh, advisor to a number of startups in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. Um, I'm on the board of Enchain, which is a a leading player in terms of providing blockchain solutions to enterprise. Uh, I advise governments and international organizations on their blockchain strategies. And also now more recently, uh, creative people, so artists, fashion designers, um, also brands who are looking to explore NFTs and explore the metaverse and helping for them to make sense of where blockchain and crypto and everything comes together. You come from traditional finance, as you said, and what sparked you, what sparked your interest in crypto to begin with? Yeah, it's funny. Somebody said to me recently, um, they were they were asking me about this, and they, they said it's it's almost like I'm a some sort of banker gone blockchain uh, in terms of why I, I moved in this direction. Um, for me, it was. I suppose, firstly, it was just a curiosity about blockchain because there had been a lot of talk. I'm based here in Switzerland and there's just a lot of things happening in in blockchain and crypto. So it was more firstly out of curiosity, but also, you know, I'm very happy to have worked in banking for such a long time, but there are lots of inefficiencies and lots of shortcomings in the system, which when I started to explore blockchain, I realized these could be fixed independently of banks or independently of centralized institutions. I've also seen the ineffectiveness of just how processes work and even how regulation can be quite ineffective. So all of these things led me to, to look at blockchain and start to reframe things that I see every day. And when we talk when we talk about blockchain, obviously the, the things that drive me to to try and you know throw myself into this is things like creating financial inclusion you know that's a big thing that that's missing in the current financial system and it's something which can definitely be addressed with blockchain 
I think there's a lot of things that can be done with the environment. Uh, there are a lot of projects blockchain based, which can be used for anything from carbon tracking to assisting with recycling. So there's a lot of things, especially when the climate crisis is a critical uh, issue for people to consider. So I think, you know, blockchain has a lot to do there. Privacy is another thing, which being a lawyer and, and working within banking, I've, I've you know, dealt with a lot of data privacy and data protection throughout my career. And um, I, I guess I'm a little uncomfortable at where things have gone uh, with the way that data is being held at centralized servers and is being sold on. There's a lot of, I think, difficult conversations that need to be had about data and um, blockchain and the a whole work around self-sovereign identity that kind of got me interested as well, and and obviously the transparency and the trust. I, I think you know we're in we're in a, an industry which is audited and regulated, and yet we have constant scandal after scandal. So it just shows that I think while everyone is doing the best they can, I think using technology to create more transparency and trust is something which is important. So they're the things that you know made me as a banker look at blockchain with with a positive eye rather than a, a suspicious one. And what is it specifically you think you mentioned a few things that you see and understand in crypto and blockchain on a deeper level than uh, traditional banks do not? Because so far, banks kind of see it. If you read the mainstream news and not the crypto related news, they kind of see it a bit like gambling or something not seriously in any way, right? Or just trading. Uh, Why do you let me rephrase? Why do you think? banks have this view and you have a more deeper view on this i would presume it's because i've taken a deeper dive than maybe most people in banking and i'm i'm very general in what i've just said i mean there are lots of people in banking who are deep diving into crypto but just generally when we talk about why the banking industry or the finance industry looks at crypto skeptically i think they're just looking at crypto and trying to figure out where does this fit into the world of investment and you know what kind of an asset is this? So um, where I've looked at this, I've spent years researching and understanding blockchain and looking then holistically at how it all comes together. So I, I see the next stage of Web3 and the metaverse as being the place that really, really threads the entire thing together. So I'm looking at a big picture and I'm looking at it as to what it's going to be in 10 years. So I'm, I'm not looking at it as a sort of an aggressive short-term investment. Banks, on the other hand, are obviously forced into looking at this as an investment because if we're honest, you know, it's not the job of banks to come up with holistic ideas about blockchain. It's up to them to help their both their shareholders and their clients to find good investment opportunities. But what this has led to is I feel a very um, clunky conversation where you know you turn on CNBC and people are debating whether Bitcoin is is it a safe haven? Is it digital gold? Is it a hedge against inflation? And because it's not happening right away, people are kind of arguing about why is it tracking the stock market? No, it shouldn't be tracking the stock market. Why are the, why is the price so volatile? And I think that's the world that banks are looking at this in. You know, they're kind of looking at the tail end of, of what's happening right now. Whereas if you are a long-term investor, you would probably take the view, well, you know, pull it all together. Blockchain is going in a totally different direction. So that's really thing, the thing I, I think. And I have those discussions with people inside the financial industry. And I, and I think the difference is I'm taking a 10-year view. I, I, I really don't care what happens crypto prices today or tomorrow. Um, I'm not too concerned about the negative news about uh, regulation and all those things that are floating around right now, because really it's where this is going to be in 10 years that, that interests me. Yes, I entirely agree. And one could say that the opposite of traditional finance in some ways is, of course, decentralized finance. And you, and, and you mentioned, of course, Web3, 
and the metaverse. Uh, how do you think DeFi will interact with traditional finance in any, if in any way? And are there any opportunities that lie there? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because um, when you look, when you talk about banking and finance, the thing that makes people the most uncomfortable if you're a banker and the most curious if you're not a banker is the whole concept of decentralized finance and whether or not we can really genuinely have a financial system that has no banks or no, no central authorities. I find DeFi brilliant on a personal level because I think it's uh, it's a really interesting tool to bring people who don't have very much wealth or uh, who who have who trip over those typical barriers to entry when it comes to regular finance. So people in very remote parts of the world have the possibility to put money into a place that they can earn income. Uh, this is particularly helpful for. We, it's a, an overused phrase now, but when we talk about the unbanked, I mean, it is still a major problem that needs to be addressed. So this is something which which can really help. There is also, we hear more and more about this great resignation that's happening as people are leaving their jobs and they're looking for more work-life balance. And many of those people, particularly in, in Gen Z, are looking at DeFi as a way to create a stable income. And if it's not going to be DeFi, it's possibly going to be play-to-earn gaming. So here we have an interesting ability for people to actually create income, not just put your money somewhere, but an income that you can live off. Now, the flip side is, of course, for something like DeFi to be really, really taken seriously, it needs to be used by more than just a few peripheral gamers and, and crypto advocates. And right now in the in the institutional world, people think DeFi has a real risk of being a Ponzi scheme, um, that it's going to be rug pull after rug pull. And there is some truth to that. There, there is definitely a high risk. Um, there are some great DeFi protocols, but there are some horror stories about, about projects that have gone wrong. So I think the opportunity, to my mind, is probably going to be something which is like a bridge between centralized finance and decentralized finance. I think banks are not going to disappear because of DeFi, because there are still going to be people who either are not very comfortable managing their own money. So they're going to choose to give it to their wealth manager or, or their banker. There are also people going to be extremely wealthy who just don't want to spend their days looking at yield farms. So those people will still require intermediaries. But for everyone else, I think it would be interesting if, if institutions were to explore some kind of bridge, because right now, for anyone who uses DeFi, it's complicated it's it, you know it's it's a it's a very steep learning curve and it's very fragmented as well there there are so many defi protocols that you can go to but it's very hard to gather all your information in one place so those kind of things i think there's probably an opportunity for uh, traditional finance to step in in some sort of bridge role and also i think the role of a financial advisor can change because Right now, financial advisors tend to take your money and manage it for you. But perhaps there is an opportunity in the future where people will choose to hold their tokens in their own wallet and be educated and advised on what to do without actually giving up custody of their of their assets. So I think it's more the bridge. I think we need to accept that in five, 10 years time, we will have a centralized finance world and a decentralized finance world. And it'll be up to you as a consumer to choose which you want to use. How do you think... This technology will play out in the long term. You mentioned right now, of course, that in five to 10 years, we're going to have two types of finances or two types of economies, even if we could say that. And you said that you think that the banks will not be replaced. Do you think lawyers will have to adapt as well due to smart contracts? And if so, in uh, in what way? Yeah, I've, what I say, I think banks won't be replaced. I think it's because 
when I just to clarify when I say that, I think parts of what banks do will be replaced. But the service that banks provide, when you look at it from A to Z, they do provide some really high value services, as well as some things that are really nothing more than box ticking. So the box ticking kind of roles will, will be removed. Now, removing the middleman is always what people say when they try to explain blockchain. So I, and I guess it is a good way to to look at this is that if you look at any industry or any profession and you look at the people or the institutions that play in that box, how many of them are sitting in the middle doing something that could be replaced by a smart contract? That's really the question. Now, it won't always lead to disruption. In some cases, it will enhance in, in a very big way some, some industries. Like, for example, supply chain is something that can be really, really improved. And I don't necessarily think it's going to turn the the industry upside down. I'm not sure it will disrupt people negatively, but it will allow food to be tracked or products to be tracked from A to Z. You'll be able to calculate things like carbon footprint. You'll be able to properly, if, if you're talking about organic food projects, for example, you'll know exactly where that food came from and when. Those are things that are enhancing the industry and I think helping people along the way. The same with carbon reduction programs, I think there are a lot of new opportunities with uh, people being able to generate money by themselves, whether it's solar panels on their roofs and they're selling electricity to their neighbor. Those are very, I, I would consider those to be disruption in a positive way. I think then there would be a little bit of uh, mixed disruption. Finance will probably fall into this one because I think the there are aspects of advisory and aspects of finding investors that banks do and wealth managers do. That That is not really going to be possible to replace by, well, it can to an extent, but I think the relationship element in the end, it's still humans doing business with humans. So there needs to be some uh, role for financial institutions, but lending, I mean, simple lending in terms of finding somebody who wants to deposit their money for an interest rate and then lend it out to somebody else. That is, it is being done. And I think that is something which can definitely be replaced. Um, the art industry, that's one that I think is up for a huge disruption. It's not happening yet because there are still a few things that need to be sorted out with NFTs. NFTs work great with digital art. It's a little bit more complicated when you're talking about physical assets like real art. Uh, no, I don't, not real art, fine art or physical art. If you want to hang that on your wall and you want to buy it from somebody in it, in another part of the world, the token allows the transfer of title quickly, but something needs to be done to link that to the physical piece. That's not quite sorted out yet, but when it is, art, the art industry is one where there are, are enormous intermediary fees being charged. So that will be an interesting one to watch. The legal profession, I, I say this uh, as, a, as a lawyer, I think there are lawyers who create great value and there are lawyers who really do very little. I'm thinking more in the lines of very basic estate planning, creation of wills, creation of simple contracts, transfer of property, probate. Those are things which are, um, for the want of a better phrase, they are box ticking exercises, which can be definitely automated in, in a big way. The flip side, however, is that with the creation of NFTs, there are going to be multiple problems with copyright, with intellectual property, with uh, infringement of regulation. I mean, a lot of pe people are creating NFTs thinking that they're not subject to financial regulation, but they are effectively investment products. So there will be uh, some parts of what lawyers do will become obsolete, but I think other parts will become even more important. And then the areas which I think will be at real risk are those intermediaries where everything they do can be replaced. So in the financial industry, 
payment and settlement of transactions. There's a lot that when we start moving payments to blockchain and cryptocurrency is used for payments, there's very little uh, there's very little hope for a lot of those intermediaries that, you know, when you send money to a bank in another country and it takes three days. I mean, there are so many intermediaries involved in that process. You can remove a lot of them. The same with payment providers. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that can be streamlined on the payment side. Um, and outside of finance, I would say probably music labels are one of the ones at risk because um, we're seeing more and more now how creative people, and this includes in particular musicians, are able to gather and build a community around themselves and launch their music through NFTs and through the sale of basically the sale of certain perks and rights attached to their music. So by cutting the music label out completely, either the songwriter is going to own the copyright or they are going to sell royalties to their fans, but it does mean that there's no need for an intermediary. So I think there we will see quite a quite a bit of change coming. But in the end, it'll be a little bit like when the internet came. You know, travel agents were probably one of the ones that got slammed. But at the same time, some travel agents reimagined re what they could do. And they survived because they, they focused on some very bespoke travel or intrepid travel ideas. And they still exist today. Um, bookstores, the same. You know, most bookstores who tried to compete with Amazon they died quickly, but the bookstores who kept this old world feel and created an experience where people could come and smell the books, and sit down and have coffee, they still exist. So it's not really that everything is just going to disappear, but I think it will require people to reimagine what they do and most importantly, focus on whether they really add value or whether they're really just pushing, they're, they're just another cog in a wheel that doesn't necessarily need to be there. And you mentioned it, that NFTs da, uh, do have a few things that still need to be sorted out. And to touch upon that, what do you think are, at least for the moment, the biggest challenges that face cryptocurrencies and blockchain? Regulation is definitely the thing right now. From cryptocurrencies point of view, uh, I would say it is most certainly. But I think it sort of it spills over onto all other aspects of blockchain, because I think until people are comfortable with cryptocurrency, blockchain is going to struggle to, to really go mainstream. And in fact, I would say that the, the biggest challenge is regulation and misinformation together. And in some cases, it's regulation being driven by misinformation, which is kind of the worst cocktail. And, and we do see that quite a bit now. What the, the problem that we have right now is that regulation is being driven by people who are in a generation of, of what I would consider to be very fixed mindsets. It's just the way politics goes. People that are in the decision-making seats are of a certain generation, and they're not necessarily a generation that is open to the kind of change that blockchain and crypto are, uh, are trying to, to sort of bring. So these are people who are trying to build a future by looking at the past, and that doesn't really help when you're coming with something very revolutionary like, like cryptocurrency. You know, as, as Einstein said, We can't solve the problems with the same thinking that we used when we created them. So here we definitely need to break the old uh, the old thoughts. So if we even take in the last couple of weeks, last weekend in the New York Times, uh, a Nobel winning economist said that cryptocurrency was going to be the next subprime mortgage crisis. Joe Biden says that cryptocurrency is a threat to national security. Janet Yellen is saying that crypto is only used for money launderers and drug trafficking. First, we were told Bitcoin, for example, was bad for the environment. Last week in Sweden, a politician said that we need to stop proof of work mining because now it's using too much green energy. So we've gone from being completely un, you know, environmentally unfriendly to now being too green. We're using all the green energy. So the, the, the 
kind of constant narrative is we need to kill it. It needs to be stopped. There's there's really very little open mindedness. Thankfully, there are people on the other side of the fence within these institutions and these governments that are pushing to, to get forward with this. But I think people are not thinking about the bigger, broader advantages. You know, they're looking for problems and they're trying to kill it. And here, I think regulation needs to be sensible. I think we need to, first of all, understand the big picture. Like, what is it that cryptocurrency can do? What are the positives that it can do? And let's weigh this up. You know, if, if cryptocurrency and blockchain can eventually help to create massive financial inclusion, can help to really tackle the climate crisis by empowering everyone on the planet to, to assist in the fight against the climate change, those kind of things need to be balanced out with, oh, well, what about money laundering? You know, they're, they're, I'm not saying that you should let people launder money, but you need to kind of balance this a little bit more. Like after 9-11, nobody ever suggested that we would just stop planes from flying. You know, we found a way to become more safe in the sky. We, we, it was a change of mindset. It was a higher level of security. But that's the thing that we did. Um, if we decided to start banning things whenever they look a little bit scary, well, then we'd probably need to ban all the fast food. Uh, restaurants because people might get obese or, or get diabetes. So we have to be more measured in this. And for me, I really think that we need to be thinking about with every financial problem, every financial crisis we've had, whether you look at, you know, starting with things like Enron, and then we have the subprime crisis, and there's Bernie Madoff, and there's Wirecard, and there's GameStop. And every time these things happen, inquiries are launched. And it's the financial institutions that are always held accountable. And somebody says we need to tighten regulation and we need to prevent things. But nobody is ever asking the question of why something happened on the other side of the table. Like, why did somebody borrow money in the subprime crisis that they couldn't afford to, to pay back? Why has somebody been fooled to investing in a Ponzi scheme? And the problem is because most people are financially illiterate. And, I, and this is not just in the developing world. In, in Europe, in the U.S., very well-educated people who are in very good jobs just don't understand how to manage their money or how to manage finances or how to identify these things. So in the same way as we give a person a driver's license to drive on the road, we should be perhaps considering that instead of killing things like cryptocurrency with regulation, we should just say to people, look, we think it's a risky uh, thing for you to do. So we're going to have you pass an exam. You know, we're going to have cert certifications for you to, like you can't work as a trader on Wall Street without licenses. You can't be a, a stay-at-home trader without a license as well, because we want you to protect yourself. And, and the benefit of this would be that you'd still allow everyone to participate, because by because typically what the way regulation goes is that regulation will first try to kill something, then realize it can't be killed, and will then restrict it to just a very select group of people, which is why you then have this wealth imbalance, because the people who are the wealthiest are the ones who are given the opportunities to get wealthier through these investment opportunities. And meanwhile, everyone else is stuck with their you know, deposit account that pays half a percent. So that, that imbalance, if you want to fix that, if you want to create financial inclusion, then I think financial education should be part of this. So that for me is the biggest challenge. It's the, um, the fact that governments seem to be trying to kill a mosquito with a steamroller instead of trying to find a way to, to strike a balance. And a question that just came to me now from what you said, do you think that DeFi and cryptocurrencies can be somehow, let's say, put into the custody of just a few people, as you said? Because like when you when I study this subject, it, I really tried to find how can I take this closet and give it, let's say, to just a few people. And I just maybe it's my lack of experience or like knowledge, but 
I just cannot find a way that you can close it. Do you think there is there is practically a way to do it in one way or another? Uh, no, there isn't a way to, to my mind anyway, there isn't a way to just shut it off and, and sort of try and control it. But what typically can happen is that you make the off-ramps very complicated. So uh, you can go into whatever DeFi protocol you want and make all the money you want. But if where the regulators still do have the power and governments have the power to prevent things from happening is at some point in time when you want to use that or your earnings from your yield farm and you want to use it in the real world, whether you're doing it through a, a debit card or whether you're doing it through you know, going to an exchange and exchanging it for fiat currency, that's the moment where they can make it difficult. So they can prevent people from utilizing what they're making, which is probably one way. The other way is that they can just start calling every single token in the DeFi world a security, and then it becomes problematic for the uh, protocols themselves. This is this is why I think the balanced approach to regulation is so much better, because instead of wasting 10 years trying to kill something that you can't kill, why not find a way to enable people to use it safely? Um, because what's I, I know that there have been discussions in in regulatory bodies in the US about certain DeFi protocols that they've had their eye on. And there has been comments coming out of there where they've said, well, we're pretty sure that there's a group of developers that are responsible for this. So we can kind of hold them. Even if there's no legal entity, we'll still find those developers. Now that may be true for the DeFi protocols that exist, but if it is true, it's very easy for them to rectify that. You know, we, we're seeing more decentralized autonomous organizations being created. So I think you could find yourself pretty quickly having a whole range of DeFi platforms that are actually operated as DAOs. And then from a regulatory point of view, it's impossible to stop them. What you need to do then is find a way that you can genuinely protect the users. And maybe education is, is a better way than trying to just, you know, close things down. You also mentioned it that, uh, you know, there, uh, the people, at least for the moment in power, they are of a certain mindset, uh, both when it comes to politics and in, and in uh well, in the upper echelons, let's say of a bank. On the other way, on the other hand, you have big tech companies which are far more open-minded with technology, and you see now that they're start they, that they started taking this technology and start doing things with it. For instance, Opera started. Well, they try to enhance their browser to become a crypto browser with their own wallets. You see Netflix looking at NFTs to perhaps. Um, fund their movies when i see this i kind of think you know like there google also said that you know they're going to uh have a push on crypto although i'm not sure what exactly they're going to do how how do you see this because when i see this i kind of see that they're preparing to become in one way or another competitors to banks and how do you how do you see banks tackling this yeah, it's it's the kind of million dollar question right now, because that, that is if anyone in the banking industry has one eye on what the likes of Google are doing or you know whether Amazon is planning something like this, because obviously they have the size and scale and the resources and they're also attractive to employees as well. So they do have a lot of power in this regard. I think from as things stand right today, I think it's very difficult for Amazon or Netflix or any tech company to compete with banks when it comes to sort of financial services. Because first of all, the, the world of, of finance is so regulated. Secondly, there's a sort of a know-how. Uh, there's things that banks, banks have built 
some bad reputations, but generally they've built the reputations for being the place you go to when it comes to the managing of money. So when you ask people, and this is to go back to the fixed mindset question, when you ask people in a certain generation about tech companies working in finance, they kind of immediately say, well, that won't work because, and they'll say, unless Google is prepared to get a banking license, and then they'll have to you know, be subject to all of the rules and regulations, that's not going to happen. So I think at, as of this exact moment in time, it makes it difficult for someone like Net, using, let's use Netflix as an example. It's difficult for them to move into that space. However, the thing I feel that people are not understanding, uh, those, let's call them the fixed mindset people, the thing they're not understanding is that what finance looks like today is going to be a lot different to what it looks like in 10 or 15 years time. And it's already beginning in Web3 where we have play to earn gaming. That's, I mean, this is, this is a crucial distinction here. People are starting to earn money, invest money, exchange value in a way that they have never been able to do before, which means that if you are somebody sitting at home who's making a lot of money from play to earn gaming and staking your earnings as you play, for example, and Netflix moves into a VR environment where they start to do game streaming, then Netflix is providing you with an opportunity to get wealthy and to put your money aside. They're not acting as a bank. They're not doing anything traditional, but they have now become your go-to financial services provider because you as a Gen Z or, or eventually as a Gen A, you're not really going to be thinking about going to a bank for financial services. So I think they are going to be competing with banks, but they're not going to do it. It'd be a very insidious kind of competition because I think unless banks are thinking about getting into VR and unless banks are thinking about how they can position themselves in the metaverse, if they're not doing that, then that's where they will lose ground to the tech firms. You know, I think banks will continue to do the traditional stuff, but it, the world of finance and the world of commerce is going to be a lot bigger in 15 years than what it is today. So that's where I see the, the sort of inflection point. And do you think banks should go into VR and into, and into technology? Because there are banks need to make money, obviously, right? That's their whole purpose. And there is a lot of money, arguably, to be made in the metaverse. And VR is one po- one part of the technology of the metaverse. Do you think banks should try and get into this now that it's early or should they just not go there, I suppose? I can't actually see a role for banks in the metaverse, to, to be honest, because I think maybe no more than when we talked a little earlier about you know the bookstores and the travel agents and how you reinvent yourself in the new world. Uh, what, what was important as a bookstore was not to try and compete with Amazon because you just didn't have the scale to do it. So here, I'm not sure that banks would have a place in the metaverse. And I think that this may be the point where traditional finance establishes what its sweet spot is. And I think it will always have a sweet spot and it will always be probably in a real world context. There will always be companies that need to raise funding. There will always there will still be traditional investment going on. It's not that we're going to replace the world of traditional investment. I feel like that's where where institutions are better placed or to provide the bridge between the virtual world and DeFi and, and, and real life. Maybe I feel like that's the place they are. But I mean, if you put on a virtual, you know, a VR headset and, and you go into Decentraland and, and you find your, your local bank there, I mean, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> I'm just not sure it has a place. That's all. And um, one of the things that you mentioned it is that, you know, uh, a considerable amount of the population is illiterate when it comes to finance. And, you know, one of the things that crypto has as a USP, of course, is that it is permissionless and it allows anyone with an internet connection to access DeFi, get a loan, 
or, you know, stake, do anything that they basically want. Do you think that this is something that will make the younger generation a bit more financially literate or a lot? Because, you know, like right now, when you're 18, let's say, years old, you get, of course, your bank card, you go to the bank. But now that it is permissionless, it's a 10-year-old can just take his or her pocket money and just deposit it there. Do you think that this would be an, that this would be a good financial education for the younger generation, or how do you see this? Uh, yes and no. It's definitely certainly giving young people an opportunity to to learn by doing is a, is a fantastic way. In fact, it's the best way for for young people to learn how to manage their money. And many of the traditional banks over the last five, 10 years, we've already seen that there has been a strong push by retail banks to find a way to provide sort of a you know, accounts and little products for the for young kids because it, it it attracts loyalty firstly, but also it's it's helping, you know, there's an element of education. If you teach someone how to do something, they'll remember you for that. So I think it is a great idea to give people the opportunity early on and bearing in mind as well that as the metaverse develops, you know, today it's play to earn gaming, but there's going to be so many different ways to earn money in the metaverse through different initiatives that you'll come up with yourself. So you'll be taught from a very early age not just financial literacy, but sort of commercial savvy. You know, you learn how to do deals with people. You learn how to create value or see opportunities. So it'll grow an entrepreneurial mindset. I think that'll be very exciting. However, the one thing I would caution is that just because you have access to do these things and just because you're doing them doesn't make you good at them. And I am always so partially shocked and partially amused when the crypto market starts to go through a correction, which we've had for the last couple of weeks, and you go into a Telegram group of uh, crypto guys or girls, and they're you know they're freaking out. They absolutely are screaming from the rooftops because what the common theme is: put too much money in, can't afford to lose it. Now I don't know what's going to happen, and they typically sell out of panic. That's something that you learn when you're educated in finance is to understand how markets work and to understand you know, when to separate your anxiety from what's happening on the market. And I, I feel that when you give people the tools that allow them to get exposed to financial upside, they have to be educated on how to handle the downside as well. So there, there does need to be education. Definitely the technology will allow you to do it, but it is dangerous to give too much power to people before they understand how to handle it. That's interesting. And, you know, also with Bitcoin, you kind of know the economics of it, that it's at least supposed to go up in price long term. And it always surprises me that people do not like know it. It's one of the very basic things that you learn about Bitcoin. Like what you kind of ask, why does it go in price? And then you kind of, you know, you they kind of someone will always tell you, well, because it's because of the limited supply and, you know, the deflation aspect of it. But it just so funny sometimes people don't even uh, bother to learn the very basics before going into something yeah um do you think at some point we could have something that would be a merge of traditional finance and decentralized finance for instance uh, you mentioned that some really wealthy people may be a bit more averse to access decentralized finance do you think traditional institutions would be open to accessing them for them at some point and how would a merge of DeFi and TradFi look like? 
That, that is a very interesting question, and, and it's a difficult one to answer because I think there there needs to be some kind of bridge, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, when we look at DeFi, it's never really going to be a big, big thing unless you have institutions using it. Now, Aave have are in the they have explored. I mean, they've already released a sort of an institutional version of DeFi because one of the big problems for institutions using DeFi is that they go into one of these pools. They provide liquidity, but they don't know who the other participants are. And that's a problem from everything from KYC and money laundering to risk profile, et cetera. So Aave has now created an institutional pool where everybody in there has been identified. So even though you don't know who they are, you're relying on the fact that they've everything is is okay and there's there's no risk attached. So I feel like maybe this is what can happen is that we have very centralized finance on one side. We have very decentralized finance on the other. And in the middle, there is a, a sort of a regulated version of a DeFi, CeFi kind of mix. And in there, you have corporate treasuries from the big listed companies putting money into DeFi. You may have uh, big investment firms putting their money in there. The, that's where it works. And it's kind of detached from the really uh, what, the really sort of right side of, of DeFi. I feel like that's kind of how Emerge will look because... I definitely believe we're going to have decentralized finance in parallel with our centralized finance world. I just don't think one is, it's not a zero sum game. I think the end result will be that there will be two sort of sides to this. It's just that everyone gets to choose which one you use. And there needs to be some sort of thing in the middle, which satisfies, you know, companies cannot go into pancake swap and start providing liquidity. It's just, it literally, it goes against every single risk rule and every, uh, financial management rule they have. So something needs to be in the middle. So so that's how I think it will be. I think maybe a, a kind of a, a hybrid of DeFi and CeFi will exist for um, for that sort of middle pillar. And another question that just came to me right now is you also mentioned that banks would, that companies and entrepreneurs in the future would still need um, funding. And that's what banks are, are, are there for, right? Um, one of the things that did come to my mind when you spoke about this is that you have the equivalent, the crypto equivalent of <laughs> raising funds like, you know, IEOs, although it's with an intermediary, of course. And, then, and now you have newer ones like crowd loans and uh, IDOs. Do you think that these would pose in any way a threat to centralized ways of funding in the long term or would that not be the case and why? Well, I think when you're investing into the crypto side of things currently, you're one of the things that traditional investors struggle to get their heads around is that they're not actually buying equity in a company. So, you know, you have two ways of, of deciding to invest in something. You you decide that the internet is the next big thing. So you invest in Google and, and Facebook, or in the crypto world, you decide that it's the next best thing. So you buy the tokens of various projects and various platforms. The problem with that I, at the moment is that it is driving a lot of speculation in token prices. So people are kind of not, they're not that focused, many of them anyway, are not so focused on the utility of a particular blockchain. I mean, we have Bitcoin is an interesting one because as a utility, as, as a platform that you'd use, Bitcoin is probably not the one that you would choose as number one. I mean, it's not fast enough for payments. It, it will have, a, there will definitely be a place for Bitcoin in the future, of course. But it's just that people have decided on buying Bitcoin, regardless of the fact that actually as a, a blockchain, it has its limitations and how it can be used. 
So I think when we talk about the fundraising in crypto, we always have to be mindful that people who invest in there will probably be investing because they they love the idea of the ecosystem or they are more attracted to the platform and what it can do. Whereas a traditional investor, even if they love crypto, will still say, I want a piece of the pie. And the only way I'm going to get a piece of the pie where I can move the direction that I want it to move is by owning equity in the company. So we may find in the future that traditional investors will look for companies that are operating on the blockchain that are listed on a, on a stock exchange. So your, I guess Coinbase is the closest we have at the moment, but there will be others. You know, there will be the, the next Microsoft or the next SAP working on blockchain may have all of their business on blockchain but their equity value will be driven in a more traditional way. So I'm not sure it'll be a threat. I just think it's a new way of, of investing into projects and kind of exposure. One of the questions that I always ask people that come to the podcast is, uh, what advice do you have for young people who you know, may be eyeing crypto and blockchain as a, a, a future opportunity for a career, but they may be held back by their peers who may not yet know you know the opportunities that lie there and what the space will be in five to ten years or you know if they're young if they're still 18 21 years old uh, they may be even held back by their parents who of course may look at it quite skeptically from their point of view of course uh, what kind of uh, advice would you have for them would you say uh, go for it be more skeptical what would be your advice on this 1000% go for it. Uh, absolutely no hesitation. I, I, um, when I have talked to people who are kind of looking at getting some career advice, I, I absolutely say this is, this is where the future is going. It, how exactly it will look in 10 years, we can't say, but cryptocurrency and digital currency and blockchain, all this is where the future of finance is, is built. So if you're looking for a career in finance, now is not the time to be going into the more traditional parts of the financial industry. I think you need to get you know your hands dirty right away with crypto, and also because there are more exciting job opportunities on the crypto side of things because it's still new. But what I would recommend, and, and this is I, I think an important thing for people to consider, is that I do think, and this goes back to what I said about learning of how investments work and learning how how, how things actually how you tackle the market. I would recommend that go, you go work with a centralized institution that is active in crypto. So don't go to an institution which is ignoring crypto, because if you do that, you run the risk of working on things that are going to be obsolete in 10 years. So go to a centralized institution, because number one, you're going to learn what are the challenges operationally and technologically and with the regulator? What are the challenges that are holding crypto back? Because you're going to start learning that. You're also going to be working with people who are analyzing the markets and who are trading on the markets and are able to teach you exactly how markets work and how you can compare behavior in the crypto market with behavior on the stock market, for example, they're vital things to learn. You'll be surrounded by analysts who are doing deep research into the projects and you learn how to properly analyze projects and companies. And then in your spare time, learn DeFi, just do it yourself. You know, you don't, you're not going to ever really be taught how to do DeFi by your employer anyway, but DeFi will give you the flip side of how you can do things on your own, how you can you know, play around, be prepared to lose some money, but learn how, how to do it. Put the principles you're learning at work 
into what you're doing in your own uh, DeFi. And really, that's it will set you up perfectly because he, no matter how the future pans out, you'll be so well equipped for various different roles in, in the industry going forward. I entirely agree. And if I may add as well, you mentioned that you know you may lose some money, and I think you, sh- I think you will lose in the beginning money because you have to learn how this how this works. You just don't put <laughs> too much money when you're learning, uh, and so that when you start losing money in the beginning, because that's what I did as well. You don't get discouraged by it because, of course, you have to kind of put, let's say, a small budget that you will add for the educational purpose of it as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that fascinates me about cryptocurrencies out of the many, 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 many things uh, is that you can uh, create incentivization schemes to accomplish certain uh, goals. Uh, Do you think we could leverage this in any way that would make society a better place? And if so, how do you think that would look like? Uh, I think this is one of the really, really exciting parts of of what cryptocurrency can do is the um, incentivization of people. We, I work with a lot of people who are focusing on sustainability and focusing on creating things that are positive for the environment. And and I always, they don't like to hear it, but I always do start a conversation by saying, look, everybody says they care about these things, but actually, unless you're giving them a financial incentive of some sort, it's very hard to motivate them to do things. It's just the way human beings are, unfortunately. So I think to be able to create financial incentives and to help nudge people in the right direction is a, is a very powerful thing. And we've there are so many projects out there that are using it in, in really interesting ways. Uh, there is a, a project called Plastic Bank, which operates in a number of the, well, I know it operates in Haiti. I think it operates in a couple of other uh, countries that are typically hit by you know, climatic disasters. But what they've picked up on is the fact that, you know, you see footage from Haiti and the beaches are full of plastic and people are kind of stepping over the plastic. And the reason the locals are not particularly concerned about plastic recycling is because they're starving. They don't have they have other problems to think about before uh, recycling plastic. So basically, Plastic Bank works on the principle that people take the plastic to the plastic bank and they get paid in micropayments with cryptocurrency and they can then use that at selected locations to buy food. So what you've basically done is you've used the power of micropayments through crypto, incentivized people to recycle the plastic and given them a reward that they can uh, they, they can eat. There are other interesting projects where people are being encouraged to um, have organic farming. So they're being encouraged to uh, grow organic food in exchange for the, the fact that people who buy from these farms are getting social currency that is uh, it's helping them to support organic farming. So there's more than just paying the farmer who grows your food. There's a sort of a community being built around the, the social token. Same with um, solar power. You know, people are, are uh, putting solar panels on their houses. They're they're able to create cryptocurrency off the back of the, the energy that they're producing. Again, incentivizing people to kind of put the solar panels on your roof. It doesn't have to be at the behest of the energy company. This is something you can do yourself. Um Essentially, what it what this all is about, I think, is the social value of cryptocurrency, which, again, people of a certain generation maybe can't quite appreciate. People are struggling to understand why the Bored Ape Yacht Club is fetching so much money because people look it up and they see a, a picture of a, a cartoon drawing of an ape. But what they're missing out on is the fact that these tokens are representative of a group of like-minded people who are building something together. And 
it's the power of the social currency rather than the power of the it's not about the drawing of the ape it's about what that represents and you kind of lose that with fiat currency you know if you're paid in dollars or euro it's just money that you're paid with that you buy stuff with but if you've got a currency that you're kind of earning that is attached to something socially socially recognizable that's a very different thing like for example when you get on a plane or when you buy a flight ticket right now, usually the airline, when you're paying for the ticket, gives you the chance to offset your carbon credits and you pay an extra 10 euro or something like that. You know, you have no idea what happens to that 10 euro. You have no idea what happens to the carbon credits. I mean, really, there's no you don't really feel like you've done anything personally for the environment. You've just thrown it's like putting money in a in a charity box like you're it almost feels like it's too easy to actually have done anything. But if you had a crypto wallet on January the 1st that's filled with carbon tokens, and those tokens are added to or detracted from based on your behaviors and your choices throughout the year. And it's not just airlines, but it's whether you're supporting or, you know, um, the sort of fair trade coffee or you're choosing recycled clothing or whatever it is. And that at the end of the year, you can actually measure exactly how many tokens you have contributed and how much of an impact you've made. And socially, that's recognizable. The people can see that. I think that's much more powerful. So I think the great thing about decentralized currencies is that you can sort of frame them in whatever way you want and you can make people stakeholders in what they're doing. And I go back to the climate thing. Um, as much as governments are going to talk about at climate summits and as much as they will genuinely try to do to fix the climate, you've got 7 billion people on the planet who, if you mobilize them through incentive schemes and you get them picking up the plastic and you get them reducing their carbon emissions that's much more effective than trying to arm wrestle a corporation to get their carbon numbers down by 2050. So I think we really should harness this kind of power. And this is what I think is important is that regulation doesn't kill cryptocurrency as a whole, because we've got so many interesting things that entrepreneurs can come up with if we allow it to happen. Do you think there could be incentivization schemes for sustainability that would relate in some ways to corporations? Because of course you said that we should not perhaps uh, wrestle them, but could we somehow incentivize them with crypto as well to, to uh, offset their uh, carbon footprint in some ways, I suppose? Well, yeah, I, if you look at any, co- any company in any location, you know, let's say the board sits down and they genuinely are committed to reducing their carbon footprint. In the end, the CEO is not the person who goes around at seven o'clock in the evening, turning off the lights. He's not the person who chooses whether or not you uh, get your cleaning products from a sustainable source. He's not the one who's checking the recycling bins. It's going to be the people in facility management. It's going to be the employees themselves. So yeah, absolutely. I think people who are sitting at their desks every day in the office, they're the ones who are going to make the company carbon neutral because they're the ones who are going to make those small little choices every day that add up to the big Uh, the big impact. So even if the company is deciding, right, we want to reduce our carbon, how cool would it be if the company then decided to go and purchase every year a couple of hundred thousand euros worth of social currency tokens or sustainability tokens, which each staff member gets at the beginning of the year. So every staff member is then able to demonstrate what they've done and they get some sort of financial remuneration for their choices. So the car, you know, the, the company wins its carbon goals because it gets there, but it has done so by empowering its employees. You're not going to get there with it. It's like the whole, you can't, you can't fix the climate crisis on the planet unless you mobilize all the people on the planet. And it's the same in each company. You need everyone to be facing in the same direction. So I think, yes, you could use 
decentralized currencies, even within a corporate environment, to get everybody on board. And are there any exciting projects besides, of course, the bank that you're leading, that you're currently working on and that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm working on, on a lot of, uh, like I said, a lot of different projects with creative people. Um, but two of, the, two of the bigger projects that I'm working on, um, I'm, I'm on the board. I mentioned at the beginning, I'm on the board of Enchain, which is a, a company uh, that is providing enterprise solutions on blockchain. Uh, what's quite exciting about Enchain is it's building its solutions on the BSV blockchain, which is a blockchain that is not really out there in terms of getting the best PR and the best press, and not a lot of people know about it. But on the flip side, it's actually one of the ones that's handling most of the cryptocurrency transactions daily. It's one of the ones that is more uh, secure. It's one of the ones that's more um, efficient, environmentally friendly. So this is something which Enchain is looking at building solutions for Uh, companies, for governments, for, for more of the kind of, let's say, the, the more highly regulated industry. So that's an exciting, it's an exciting project in that I think pushing blockchain mainstream into enterprise will be a, a very interesting journey and, and one that will really get people understanding what blockchain can do. I'm also advised on the advisory board of Digital Village, which is a metaverse project, but this is a particularly unique metaverse project in that it's focused very, very firmly on sustainability so it's being um it's been founded by evelyn mora who's a has a background in sustainable fashion and there's a major push within digital village for the fashion industry but it's not exclusively just for fashion but her commitment to building a metaverse uh, that is not going to repeat the mistakes of web 2 and it's not going to repeat the mistakes of what we've done in real life so her commitment to this is to say look In a, in a digital environment, you can create as much digital fashion as you want. But how about we put restraints on things like that? We make people accountable for if you're making a digital dress, you need to be using digital cotton. Where does the digital cotton come from? Who grew the digital cotton? Let's incentivize people to do all of those things and to understand how people behave and how collaboratively you can have a more sustainable impact. But you know, she, she wants to go a step further. Like She wants to ensure that the behaviors that are fostered within Digital Village sort of spill out into the real world and that some real world behaviors that are sustainable are kind of rewarded in Digital Village. So she's got a, a really, really big vision. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating in how it can all come together. But again, this, this brings all of the things I mentioned earlier on, which is incentivizing people, getting people to behave differently, but doing it in a way that it's collaborative, you know, that you're not sort of talking down to people, but you're trying to get everyone with similar mindsets to just come together and make change. So those are, those are two, I think, of the, the really interesting projects I'm working on right now. Mm -hmm. And the digital village uh, would be, of course, there are many ways of doing it, but uh, the way that it would um, encourage sustainability would be also through incentivization schemes as well, or? Yeah, well, the, the, the idea would be that people get rewarded for, uh, for behaving well, for the want of a better word. But it's sustainability not just being about the environment, but also about social good, also about um, inclusion. All of the things which we know we don't do in the real world, but there's a chance to start afresh within Digital Village. And what is really great about this is that the way in which this can spill into the real world is that because she has got such a focus on the fashion industry, that she's able to attract big brands from fashion who are looking at exploring the metaverse. But obviously by participating in Digital Village, they have to adhere to the sustainability principles. So what you're going to start seeing is that brands come in, 
they're behaving sustainably in Digital Village and that that will then hopefully spill back out onto their brands in real life and their consumers in real life. So this really could create an impact on the environment in the real world as well. It also ties in really well with another question that I asked you, which was how do you incentivize brands and and businesses to become more sustainable, of course, as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so uh, well. Thank you for well your valuable time, of course, as well. It was a pleasure, and I also learned a lot, you know, because I'm <laughs> I tried to push us for as much decentralization as possible, but it's always useful to kind of see also the the the, the ways that banks see it, of course, right? Because you have a lot of people right now that are graduating from uh, from um, certificates that are or from programs that are completely traditional finance oriented and you know it's you can't just of course say from like you know in the most in the more DeFi kind of spaces people are more are not as inclined to use banks and they kind of don't see a use for them anymore uh well i'm somewhere in in between i suppose myself but you kind of also have to realize that you know you have a lot of new people coming in there and you can't just you know, wipe everything out. And it's really nice to talk to you about this, of course, as well. Oh, pleasure. Pleasure to have a discussion about it. I'm, I'm always keen to talk to people who are curious because I think it's uh, it's an important thing for people to learn. Um, I We should be more worried about the future than we are about the past because obviously that's where we're going. So that's, mm-hmm. that's certainly where I have my eyes focused. Thank you so much. And also for people that would be interested in the Digital Village, of course, and the and the project that you mentioned, it, uh, you could also supply me with a few links to add in the description episode so that they can explore it, of course, as well. Sure, we'll do that. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Practitioners podcast. I hope you enjoyed and learned something new today. If you have any suggestions how to improve the podcast or would like to propose yourself as a speaker, do not hesitate to contact me or my colleagues through LinkedIn.